Hello everybody and welcome back to the Jack Throttle Show. In this video, we are talking through a very important topic as we are talking about the 2023 Formula One season. The world's biggest motorsport is ready to get back up and running this weekend. And instead of doing one of those complicated, well-researched, detailed season previews, I thought I'd do something a bit more interesting and a bit easier for me. And I'd organize the 2023 Formula One drivers into the most important sports analysis category. Do they have that dog in them? And it's a term that's used a lot in the NFL and the NBA, describing that kind of competitive spirit that's in athletes. And I think applying that to Formula One gives us a good view of who's going to be up for a fight this season, regardless of where their cars are. A driver that has that dog in them is always going to be bringing their car up to the points on strategy, fighting with their teammate, making it exciting to watch. So we're going to have a look at the 2023 drivers, see which one of them fits the bill. Let's get started. One, two, three, four. I thought the best way to really start this video would be actually with a story from outside Formula One to explain a bit more about what I mean when I say a driver's got that dog in them, a kind of case study of what it means to have that dog in you. And we're going to be using the greatest golfer of all time, Tiger Woods, to tell this story because it's 1996. And after winning three consecutive US Amateur Championships, setting the record for consecutive US Amateur Championship wins, Tiger Woods is doing an interview before his pro debut tournament in Milwaukee. And there's a lot of hype behind the guy, right? He's a bit like uh, maybe an Oscar Piastri, right? Coming on the scene with an incredible junior record, a lot of eyes on him, a lot of expectation, and a lot of talk from journalists about how this guy could be the next star. So he's doing this interview. Uh, golf fans will remember this kind of iconic press conference where he laughs. He says, hello, world. And it's just after that. This guy's talking to him about his expectations for the weekend, where he thinks he can go in professional golf, and just how he's viewing the tournament. Everything is going quite well and politely, and you know we're getting some insight on golf's youngest, you know, new talent. Everyone's quite excited. The guy asks him, "How well do you think you can do this weekend?" And Tiger says, "Forgive me for reading off my notes here." Tiger says he wants to play four solid rounds of golf, uh, but it would also be nice to win the tournament. And the the host laughs and he says, "Well, you know, he kind of is playing off the suggestion that." going into your first ever pro tournament expecting to win is a little brash and a little cocky. And some of the older players on tour wouldn't really appreciate that view. They think, you know, this young guy's coming in, thinks he's better than everyone. Um, and it's just kind of a rude attitude, right? That's what the host says. He's like, oh, you know, that I think that comes off as a little cocky. And then Tiger says, well, you know, I understand that. He says, uh, I've always figured, you know, why go to a tournament if you're not there to try and win? There's really no point in even going. Second sucks and third is even worse. And that's just my nature. And we've got to remember this is professional golf, right? This isn't a sport like Formula One where a car can hold you back. If you play well enough with your equipment, you can win that tournament. Your equipment's the same as everyone else. It's a fully individual skill sport. How many shots does it take you to get round 72 holes of golf in four days? If you're the best, you'll have the lowest score. There's no holding back of equipment. There's no testing. There's no kind of wider things that, that can hold him back. So he's going in with this attitude. And then he tells the, the host, you know, why go to a tournament if you expect to win? The host replies, ha ha ha, oh, you'll, you'll learn, right? The host says, you'll learn. Um, you know, kind of talking down to him and saying like, well, you know, you'll learn just how hard it is to win on tour. And I think we get a good lesson in, in what having the competitive dog in you says, because Tiger kind of smiles at his answer. Um, and then there was a great interview, a one year follow up, right, for, from that interview. Um, the 21 year old now Tiger Woods, he's had four wins on tour, the most of any player that year. He's also had an iconic hole in one, uh, at TPC Scottsdale in, in Arizona, which I think I'll be able to put the clip of in now. Tiger's got 152 yards. Should be just a nice, comfortable nine iron for him. They're going to go nuts when he hits this thing. <laughs> with a nine iron Tiger Woods, the crowd goes wild and he's fist pumping down the fairway and we know we've got a star on our hands. And alongside those four PGA Tour wins, he also won the Masters in 1997. In his first professional year, he won golf's most important tournament and he won it with the lowest 72 hole score ever in the history of the tournament and with the biggest winning margin ever in the history of the tournament. This is year one, right? We've got a star on our hands and our throw some pictures up on now of uh, Tiger Woods in his Sunday black and red dancing uh, around the putts. 
at 18 in Augusta, um, you know, that's that dog in you, right? All the commentator could do was watch and learn that golf had a new star on its hands because he was getting talked down to, right? Um, and then he came back to be the most successful player in golf history, right? His win rate, his rate of consecutive cuts made better than any other player ever, right? He's tied, I think, in major wins. Um, and there's something Sam Snead has a lot of seconds as well. So maybe in major tournaments, he's not outright first and first. But I think if you look across all tournament play, across a single career, no one touches Tiger Woods and also the diversity of his game, right? The power off the tee, the accuracy with the irons and the clutch putting. No one touches Tiger. And that's a dog right there. So after that short history lesson, I think it's time we got into the Formula One drivers, right? We get to the actual topic of this video. And in some ways, this will be a season preview because we're going to go through every driver for this year, their changes going into it, a bit of their career history, and then basically where I think they rank on, on this system of, do you have the dog in you? Do you sometimes have it? Or are you not there yet as a driver in, in your development? Or ultimately, will you never get there? Because it's, it's a tough sport, Formula One as well. You know, I, it's, I don't want to come across as one of these journalists who's saying like, oh, it's easy. Like, why aren't you better? But the good thing about Formula One is you get to see competing people competing at the top elite, elite level. And that's when the stars are going to show themselves. And there may only be five, six, seven incredible elite tier drivers. Excuse me if you can hear the siren going past my window. Maybe they're going to arrest me for talking bollocks. But we're going to go in reverse championship order, I think, like most season previews. Um, and we'll start with the Williams boys. So Logan Sargent, a new driver, um, you know, an unproven talent in some ways, had some success in Formula 2, but a little bit like Joe, it's not the kind of rise to success that Piastri had, where you're launching up through the junior ranks. It's taking a bit of time and a lot of budget to keep you in the junior ranks for enough time as you then need to make your way through, right? He had feature race wins in, in Formula 3, or sorry, in, in Formula 2 at, at Silverstone, which is very impressive. Uh, I believe I, I was actually there in Silverstone this year when he won that race. Um, but he did spend three years in Formula 3, which is a bit like being held back in, you know, in year five. It's, it's like you're not really, you're not progressing at the right speed if, if you need three years in Formula 3. And he didn't really get any driver academy recruitment at that time. He wasn't a driver that kind of had this incredible hype behind him, like a young Kimi or a young Max, right? It was, it was kind of different to that. Um, if you want to Google what his uncle does for a living, that's an interesting 20 minutes on Wikipedia, um, big part of the US military industrial complex, but it's neither here nor there. It's not his fault. He's done nothing to, uh, to influence that, but it is interesting always to look at the kind of the budget uh, background of some of these kind of pay drivers. Um, for now, though, he has to go in, in, in the no dog category, which might be tough, but I think at the end of the day, you can't put someone like Sargent who, until he scores points, I mean, if, if he's able to score points in that Williams, it would be pretty cool. Um, but I don't think he's going to challenge Alex. And, and I think Alex is really going to have to step up and lead that team. Hopefully we can see a bit of a kind of Gasly Yuki type bond between them. And, and maybe Alex can kind of pull Sargent up because, it, you know, it's a, it, uh, Alex had the responsibility of, of leading the team last year with Latifi and Sargent's even less experienced and less maybe fast than, than Latifi was. Right. So if, if Alex can kind of pull him up to, to the right level and to, to bring the team forward, of course, with their new print, sorry, of course, with their new team principle too. Difficult words there. I'm, I'm talking quickly. Um, if, Lo if Logan Sargent could score well in the US races in Texas, Vegas, or uh, Miami, that would be pretty cool. Um, but for now, though, it's got to be a no dog uh, for Logan Sargent. And we move on now to his teammate, Alex Albon, aka Albono, aka Albon Pets, aka my nickname for him, the TIE Fighter, um, which I think should catch on. You know, he, he had majorly competitive running in, in Formula 2, um, promoted very quickly in, in the kind of unique Red Bull way to big boy seats, to the Toro Rosso seat, and then, of course, to the, the top Red Bull seat with Max. Very tough for anyone to be Max's teammate. We've seen it. It's even started getting to Checo this year. Um, the year out that Alex took after leaving that Red Bull seat, he was genuinely successful and, and fast in, in the DTM. And the DTM's probably the most competitive touring car category in the world, right? You've got the Aussie V8 supercars is pretty incredible, um, but there's not a lot of depth. I mean, the, the kind of, you know, the best five drivers from Aussie supercars are amazing. Of course, we know Scott McLaughlin's had a lot of success since moving to IndyCar and Van Gisbergen too. Um, you know, Shane Van Gisbergen could probably go anywhere in the world if, if he wanted to, but he seems happy winning in supercars. The DTM 
Alex's main role was kind of to help Liam Lawson make his way to that title. And there was a pretty epic clash at the end of the DTM in 2021. Um, you know, not quite as epic as the end of the Formula One season, but still pretty dramatic. Um, we'll get back to the point of the video, though. Alex Albon, I think he's got to be in the sometimes dog category. I mean, he's shown at times to be a real talent um, and to be, you know, someone that would be picked over other drivers. Like he's just on the edge of that class of Lando, Max, George uh, and Charles, right? Of, of those kind of new young stars. And I think he's probably pretty pissed off that he's not not talked about as being in that group um, and, and feels that he should be. And he's also good with the hairstyles, right? So you've got to give Alex some, some credit for that. I'm going to put him for now in, in the sometimes dog category in our kind of middle tier, because I just, I just don't think that the car will allow him to perform well enough. And we should always be trying to take the car out of it and evaluate the drivers on their own. But he hasn't been given a car recently in his kind of developed state to show that he can compete near the middle. And, and maybe the Williams can do that this year. Hopefully he can pick up some kind of weird tire deg strategies, go for a one stopper when others go for a two stopper, sneak his way up into the points. But I think we saw from testing that it might be tricky in the Williams moving swiftly on to the AlphaTauri's, the short Kings, the shortest team pairing in the history of Formula One. I think Sky commentator Anthony Davidson uh, was very happy to learn that his record of being a part of the shortest ever driver pairing in Formula One at Super Aguri had been taken away by this year's AlphaTauri drivers. Yuki Tsunoda, an absolute menace on the team radio, always fired up, always ready to give it the big in. If the team's got it wrong, if he feels like the tires aren't warming up, he feels like a guy blocked him in qualifying, you're always going to get Yuki spouting off on the radio. And at times that can be a good thing. And it's something that the team have kind of actively spoken about in the media, because it's very obvious if you watch the races that that's the, the kind of dynamic. And I think it's tough for him to adjust to that. He has this kind of Call of Duty lobby type, uh, type radio skills. Um, but there has been positive signs in his growth pattern. I mean, he's got faster, he's got more consistent, he's got less angry. Um, and I think having a mentor like Pierre's really helped him with that. Got to cut back on the crashes. Um, it's always going to be tough starting at the back as well. AlphaTauri had quite unreliable last year. We saw Yuki have to take a lot of penalties starting at the back, which again is always going to hinder his point scoring ability. Um, but it was a good episode of Drive to Survive this year, I think, when they were following the, the AlphaTauri guys. There's a lot of goodwill behind Yuki and a lot of desire for him to succeed. I think, of course, coming from Honda, coming from the, the Japanese fan base of, of Formula One, um, it would be awesome to have a really quick Japanese driver. And hopefully we do get that with Yuki this year. For now, though, he's got to go in the no dog category because he just isn't in that elite tier of driver. And we haven't seen often enough the dog in Yuki on track. Um, on the radio, we've seen it plenty. His teammate, Nick DeVries, uh, the rookie that isn't a rookie, right? F2 champion, Formula E champion, four times out at Le Mans in LMP2 and two points on his Monza debut um, with Williams last year as a reserve driver, right? Coming into that car, a seat that doesn't really fit, a car that's not fit to your driving style, a car that you've had no say in the development of, bang, two points on your debut, right? I'm optimistic about DeVries this year. Um, the car looks a little bit better in testing, but... If he's got a car to compete with, I think we will see him right up in that midfield. If he hasn't, he's going to be have to, you know, he's going to have to kind of be that mentor for Yuki. I feel like he will have him in qualifying pace, um, but it's just going to be about keeping the motivation together for the team, right? If they're going to be P9 again, it's going to be pretty tricky. Um, but DeVries, I'm going to put above Yuki. I'm going to put him in the maybe dog category. So we've got two, right? We've got Alex and, and Nick in there so far in that middle tier. No one in the top tier, um, but we're going in reverse order. So maybe we'll get more as we get to the front of the grid. Next team up is Haas, the Haas experience, right? Nico Hulkenberg, the super sub coming back in, a stunning trim and an incredible record of scoring points in, in Formula One. No podiums, um, always something that's followed Hulkenberg around. But the Hulkenberg hype train started way, way back in 2010. Poland, Sao Paulo, uh, the Brazilian Grand Prix of 2010. Great expectations on the young talent. He wasn't even able to bring home the podium that day. But to put it on pole like that, um, you know, emulating a little bit what K-Mag did last year, right? A kind of surprise pole from a backmarker team, a driver that didn't really have any right to be there, um, assisted by the conditions. Sorry, turn my text message off. Um, assisted by the conditions a little bit, but even back in 2010, people were pretty jazzed up on, um, on Nico. Then we had, you know, performances like, uh, where have we got the 70th anniversary Grand Prix coming in for Stroll, I believe, um, and putting the pink Mercedes onto P3 in, in qualifying 
at Silverstone, another incredible performance. And, and it's always kind of nice to have this reputation as a good reserve driver, a good super sub. Um, but back in a full race seat for the first time since 20, 2020, uh, when he was at Renault with Daniel Ricciardo, and he was firmly outpaced by Daniel Ricciardo in those years. Uh, we'll see for Hulkenberg, but I think it's going to be no dog for now. Kevin Magnussen, his teammate, uh, more chilled now. He's a father now. He's relaxed. He sees racing as a different thing in his life. It's no longer the most important thing, right? He's got a family at home, but he's also got a family that he's got to provide for, right? He needs to deliver the results if he's going to get paid. Um, if he's going to stay in Formula One, he needs those results and he needs to bring home the bacon for the family. So is it a change of motivation? Well, kind of, um, but he's got more to play for now. He knows he can leave Formula One and still live a, a fulfilled life, but at the same time to provide for that family, Formula One's where you've got to go. Um, again, back in his early days, right, there's, there's always going to be that meme of him and Nico, um, he did have a reputation even for the young drivers coming in. I remember George saying back in 2019 that K-Mag was a brutal guy to race against. He'll show you a curb, he'll show you a wall, he'll show you a sand trap if he needs to. And, and it'll be if he's fighting for like P17, P18. I think that's the thing that K-Mag has like tried to change really. Um, and it's been a positive step in his driver development. His return to Haas last year, points in Bahrain, pretty significant moment in the history of Haas, very cool. Um, where else have we got? It's a bit like his teammate, really. Good performances, but not frequent enough to move out of the no dog category. Um, so he's going down there too. A tough one for Haas, right? Two, two no dog drivers. Schumacher probably would have been in that category too, right? He just smashed up too many cars. Moving swiftly on, Aston Martin, right? The heroes of testing. Oh man, are everyone's happy? about the Aston Martin. Everyone says it looks the best. It's the most beautiful car. They've copied all the good bits of all the cars. Um, and, you know, it's the car to beat, right? They've made the biggest step, the biggest single step in development of, of any team. Because it's the thing with testing is you're going to have a last year's championship order. And if you, if every team develops at the same rate, the championship order will just carry over because they're all going to improve the same amount. To jump someone, you have to develop at a faster pace than they do, not just develop in and of itself. You have to be better at that development and significantly better at making those changes to make a real difference. And that's what everyone's saying that Aston Martin have done. The old man and the son, that's what I've titled this section. Always got to get my clever quips in. Uh, Fernando Alonso, right? Tough to describe him as anything more than a driver's driver. Mind games factionalizing the team, arguments, kind to the media, mean to the media, a prick when he needs to be. He'll do everything he can to get in your head to rattle you if you're as fast as him, right? He only does it when he needs to. And if he is doing it, it's kind of evidence that things aren't going the way he wants, right? We saw that back in 2007. We saw the fact that he felt the need to start fucking with the team, to start really, you know, doing dodgy block blocking and all those kind of things in, in qualifying to turn the heat up a little bit in the garages and to try and mess with his new teammate, Lewis Hamilton. Um, he won, of course, back in 2010 in Bahrain, his debut race, debut race, excuse me, with uh, Ferrari, pushed Seb right to the limit in 2010 and 2012. Mark Webber, of course, too, um, right in the mix for that championship in, in 2010. And there's not really any other driver like Fernando on the grid. He describes himself as like an anti-hero, like a bad guy. Um, humbling years back in the McLaren Honda days, GP2 engines, and uh, he's resurged to some great performances with that Alpine when it stayed together, when it was fast enough to finish the races. He probably did have the, well, not probably, definitely did have the measure of Ocon uh, on race pace when the car was working for him. Um, not much else you can say really about the two-time world champion, dethroning Schumacher, of course, back in 2005, fighting with Kimi and Michael and Montoya for those championships, Fisichella, of course, too. Um, but he was firmly number one driver back in those Renault days, of course. Got to be a dog for Fernando, our first dog of the 2023 Formula One drivers and a pretty obvious pick, an old dog in many people's eyes. His teammate Lance Stroll, very tough with Lance. Um, on his day, particularly in the wet, he's a real, real talent. It, it was really always going to be tough coming in because he kind of had this persona that it was, you know, it was a bit like your, your dad's mate being the coach of a Sunday league football team. Even if, oh, sorry, not your dad's mate, your mate's dad being the coach of the Sunday League football team, where, you know, if, if your mate makes that team, even if he's good, 
in your head, you're always going to think, well, it's because your dad's the coach, even if he's good, right? It's going to hold him back. He's going to kind of have this pressure of like, well, you might be an amazing talent, but you're very, very wealthy and also very, very talented. So maybe if someone who's just as talented but doesn't have the wealth is going to get knocked out of, of the same position that you're in. And maybe even someone that's more talented than you but didn't have the budget to get there, right? That's the problem with motorsport, though. That's not Lance Stroll's fault at all. Um, and we've seen him stay in Formula One. Would he get replaced if his dad didn't own the team? Maybe. Uh, Dragovic, we know, knocking on that door of, of Aston Martin, but probably placed to be there as Lance Stroll's teammate rather than his replacement. What have we got on here? Monza qualifying, put it on the front row in, in 2017. Monza race in, in 2020. He came third back in that pink Mercedes. On the podium, fighting across the line with Valtteri Bottas in, in Baku, nearly got P2 there, brought it home P3. And back in 2017, that was huge for Lance. That really rewrote the story for him. Um, what else have we got? Pole in Turkey in 2020 in super mixed conditions, sliding around on the Inters. That was particularly impressive. Uh, and then, of course, another podium in Bahrain uh, when Checo won that race. It was that 1-3 for, for racing point in what we thought was Checo's final ever race. I think for Lance, he has to go in the sometimes dog category. I mean, he had a brutal year last year. It felt like the car really wasn't working for him. But with how fast the Aston Martin's been in, in testing, he doesn't have any excuse this year. We know he probably won't be in the first race in Bahrain. Um, but for the rest of the year, Stroll's going to be right in the mix, I think. And he's, he's going to have to push because Fernando's going to be pushing the hell out of that car once he realizes how quick it is. Um, you know, he'll have the bit between his teeth, right? So Stroll... Sometimes dog for me. I think his performances sometimes have been far better than other equivalent, you know, young driver graduates, maybe like a sergeant, like a Joe uh, or a Latifi, right? Stroll is a kind of step above those guys. Um, so yeah, middle category for, for Stroll. Alfa Romeo Salba, uh, title for this section, business in the front, party in the back, right? Valtteri, Bo Valtteri Bottas with the nastiest mullet on the Formula One grid, firm Australian and the Aussies do it right. Uh, in many ways, beyond just haircuts, haircut of the mullet, quite a controversial one, um, but so bad it's good, right? Who doesn't love that? Uh, Joe Guan Yu, better than I think most people expected, really. He came through with that pay driver reputation, um, but it's a credit to him that he was able to score in his first race. Um, you know, he, what have we got? Plenty of uh, graduating through the junior ladder. The problem with Joe, a bit like Sargent, is that it took him three years to get through Formula 3 and then another three years to get through Formula 2. Again, it's a bit like being held back, right? If you were good enough, you would have graduated. You would have got signed before that. If it takes you three years when it takes other people one or two, then it's just it's, it's not a good sign on the resume. Um, but the Chinese sponsors, the budget backing kept him in the mix, got him eventually to Alfa Romeo Sauber and probably a, a good kind of compromise where Sauber get the budgets they need to develop their car, develop their staff and, and their factory. Um, and Joe is pretty good, right? We had points last year in Bahrain, in Italy and in Canada. Um, unfortunately, the thing most people remember about Joe will be the crash in Silverstone. Um, amazing that he survived that and some real bottle to get back in the car after that. Um, let's see, I might have to wrap up soon here and charge my camera battery because it's flashing red at me. Um, but for now, Joe unfortunately has to go in with the no dog category. His teammate Valtteri Bottas, the mullet man, the Mercedes veteran, among the front runners in the paddock on his day and has some wins to his name and, and of course many, 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 many podiums uh, in the ham ver bot era or the ver vet ham era or the, um, no, what have we got? The vet ham bot era of kind of 17 and 18 with, uh, with Kimi in the mix too. His teammate Lewis was always stealing headlines at the front in the Mercedes years, but the brunt of, I'm sure, the development, making the strategies work, doing the practice sessions, all those kind of things that Valtteri was doing um, were huge to, to kind of keeping that Mercedes in the mix. And Lewis said, you know, he's fought with, with most of his teammates. And I think for Lewis, it was kind of nice to, to have more of a chilled one, a Scandinavian. Um, but Lewis said Valtteri was the best teammate he's, he's ever had, right? And that's putting him above Fernando, above... Uh, Kovalainen, and then Jensen, and then Nico, and now George. Uh, maybe Lewis would prefer George once they're back up at the front together, but maybe we'll see the heat turn up in that garage if, if they start winning again. Back to Bottas, he's got to go in that sometimes dog category. We've seen, unfortunately, that he's not able to put that consistency together when he's performing at a high level to get into that elite tier of drivers. But the level of consistency that he's had 
is better than most drivers. And on his day, the level of speed that he has is better than most drivers. It's just putting those together at the same time really kind of holds him back from, from that elite tier. Um, but he's in a really good place now, I think, Valtteri, and, you know, ready to lead that team. McLaren, the young guns, right? The most exciting driver lineup on the grid, arguably, bar Mercedes. Um, Oscar Piastri, the man that everyone's eyes are on, right? Oh, my camera's very nearly flashing at me now, so if there's a quick cut soon, forgive me. Um, an impressive karting record for Piastri meant it was only a matter of time before the young Australian found himself in a Formula One seat. Now, which seat it was? Um, was the topic of many discussions and an episode of Drive to Survive, trying to figure out what his contract scenario was. Was it going to be Alpine? Was it going to be McLaren? Well, the answer we had was that it was going to be McLaren. Um, you know, we had that Prima Formula 3 seat. He had the Prima backing in Formula 2. And the expectation when you're with Prima is to win. And that's exactly what he did. So we know that he's not shy from pressure. He's not someone that's going to crumble when all the expectations are on him. Um... The problem is, though, McLaren's testing wasn't very good. They don't seem very confident just on a body language level. It didn't seem like the McLarens were over the moon with what was going on in testing. Um, but he did get that F3 title in his first year. He got that Formula 2 title in his first year, falling far, far ahead of a talented grid. Um, he's in the big boy leagues now, a bit like Tiger, as I mentioned earlier in, in 96. It's time to show how good you are. Oscar Piastri. Um, and I'm going to be optimistic. I think even with the dodgy card, trying to take the car out of it, Piastri has got to go in that dog category because I don't think there's many people that in his shoes could have done exactly what he did in those junior classes. And that's why McLaren wanted him. That's why he's got the whole grid talking. Um, and we'll be able to see, right? Even if the car's dodgy, if he gets into Q3 a few times, or if he, you know, pushes Lando in qualifying doesn't have the delta to Lando that Ricardo has, then we might have a proper talent on our hands. And it may be, you know, want to be optimistic. He's got Mark Webber managing him, right? Who did Mark Webber used to work with? The Red Bulls. Who might have a seat opening up in a few years after Checo goes? The Red Bulls. Who turned down that seat? Lando Norris. Let's put Oscar in there, right? That's what I'm thinking. Um, but again, that's pure speculation. That's me completely making that up. McLaren teammate Lando Norris, a.k.a. Noza, a.k.a. Twitch Prime, a.k.a. I put Daniel Ricciardo in my back pocket. Again, one of the most respected drivers, pacey drivers, consistent drivers on the grid, developed so much in his time in Formula One and is ready to lead that McLaren team. He's got the backing of the team. He's got the goodwill. Media loves him. Fangirls love him. Instagram followers out the arse. Um, you know, T-shirts, merch, hats. Lando Norris is, is the man in Formula One. But the problem is... Is the team there? Is he better than the team? Is he choosing to be with the team? Really? That's what he says. But I just think the timing hasn't fallen in the right place for Lando. He's probably looking at Carlos and thinking, shit, I used to drive with that guy. Now he's at the front of the grid and, and where am I? Um, again, a massively impressive junior career for Lando with that Carlin team. We know friend of the show, Tom Gaymore, was back with Lando in Formula 4 uh, when he was competing with Colton Herter. Amazing to be competing with drivers of that level so early on. And it's only going to be a testament to how good you are that you can kind of stay in, in that development curve. Um, for now, fingers crossed for points, fingers super, super crossed for, for podiums if the car will allow it, if the McLaren upgrades work as well as they say they're going to do. Um, you know, Lando Norris, like Oscar Piastri, right? If Piastri is going in that category of the dogs, then Lando's got to go there too. Um, I'm going to bank this recording now because my camera is flashing at me. So I'm going to have to cut. I'll be back. The sun might be a bit lower, um, but we'll get on to Alpine, the top four teams on the grid. Do those drivers have the dog in them? I think some of the answers are obvious, but, uh, you know, we'll be back after this short break. All right. And we're back from that slight interlude uh, with me having to charge my camera battery. And we're ready to get into the top four teams. Uh, I don't know why we've done top four. Blame that on the camera battery because obviously we're used to a kind of top three paradigm in Formula One. Um, but we'll get into Alpine, Pierre Gasly, their new signing. Um, a big signing for them, right? The kind of French revolution uh, with Ocon and, and Gasly together. Apparently they hate each other, but it all seems to be just rumors. Um, if it's something that's been there since they were like little kids, I mean, maybe that's like even to do with the strength of it, right? Like it's not 
something that's developed since they're older. It's kind of an old grudge match, um, and it might get a bit spicy on track this year, which I think all the fans would would kind of like if if it got a bit dramatic. Um, but Gasly, uh, it, it's really worth doing a deep dive on his junior career if you're interested, because it took him all over from the kind of classical European junior formula ladder all the way to Japanese super formula, when he kind of wasn't able to rise through the ranks, the space wasn't available, the funding wasn't available. Um, but as a part of the kind of Red Bull Academy, we know that they, you know, they don't really sign slouches, Red Bull. They only sign drivers who they feel have that internal talent because they are structured enough to where they're not as kind of budget dependent as other junior teams, other kind of ladders. So they have the power to select who they really want. And they selected Gasly and they thought this is a driver that we need to train to one day maybe get to one of our Formula One teams. Um, and that's what we saw him do, right? From that Japanese Super Formula, which is an incredibly competitive open wheel category racing on some of the best circuits in Japan with cars that are faster than the Formula Two cars. Um, you know, he makes it back into to Formula One 2018 with Brendan Hartley. Uh, and then teammates with Alex then gets promoted, of course, to the, the Red Bull big boy seat um, in 2019. Uh, and then was just tough for Gasly. Like after Ricardo left trying to fill that gap, it might have been a bit too early in his career. It might have been that Red Bull trap of trying to get too much too fast in a way with, you know, promoting a young driver through who doesn't have that experience. Um, but with AlphaTauri, with Yuki, we saw that kind of, second stage of development kick in with Gasly where it was more important for him to lead the team to kind of be sharing sharing his data with Yuki um and and like bring the team forward being used to being their top performer in that team which he wasn't at Red Bull but but was now with AlphaTauri but I think it was kind of a ticking clock with AlphaTauri because you can't you can't really stay there long I mean we saw like Danny Kvyat right he went from the big boy Red Bull seat then back down to, to the AlphaTauri and then never progressed forward after that because Gasly outpaced him. Gasly, I'm sure in his head, must have thought, well, I like it here at AlphaTauri. It's comfortable, um, but it's not always a good thing to be comfortable, right? You kind of, you know, you don't want to be comfortable with a team that's P8 or P9 in the championship. So he's moved on now to Alpine, the fourth best team from last year and a team that, you know, Oscar Piastri might be racking his brain and thinking, shit, I put in all this work, all this jumping around with my manager to um, to get to the McLaren seat, right? To avoid having to go to Alpine. He was trying to dodge the same problems that Alonso had seen in Alpine and thought, well, Lando's at McLaren for a reason. Lando must think that McLaren are a great team. I'll try and go there with him. Um, but Gasly said for him, the most important thing was getting to a team that had a competitive car. And it seems like the Alpine is going to be more competitive than both the McLaren and the AlphaTauri based off testing. Um, they didn't have a great test. I think their overall times were slow, but maybe that's sandbagging, maybe that's high fuel, maybe that's, you know, they're going to wait until FP2 in Bahrain to show their low fuel kind of soft tire pace. We'll see. Um, someone's got their car alarm going outside. Hopefully that stops soon. His teammate Esteban Ocon. Oh, sorry, no. Pierre. Pierre's going in that middle dog category for me. Um, Hopefully Alpine can improve their reliability. They can give him a car that will help him compete. Um, and yeah, a dog on his day. I think Pierre Gasly hopefully can move up to that elite tier, but I think we're, we're as yet to see, right? I think if you directly compare him to someone like Lando, um, while Lando of course doesn't have that win, right? We saw the brutal uh, end of, of the Russian Grand Prix of 2021 and Pierre's win, maybe not something that was on pure pace at the Italian Grand Prix, uh, in 2020, but statistically, I guess Pierre has him in that category. But I think maybe most people would would pick Lando over Pierre. And if Lando is going in that top category, then I don't think Pierre can too. Um, so he's going to go in that middle one. His teammate Esteban Ocon, um, I think an absolutely fascinating character. I mean, he he kind of has this duality, Ocon, where he's lovely. He seems like such a sweet guy. He seems uh, French in the press conferences, you know, <laughs> enthusiastic, um, kind, you know, the names of all the presenters, like just little things in the interviews that seem like the sign of, of someone with a genuinely good heart, a good personality. And he should be easy to like because he doesn't have the same kind of rich boy background that, that most of the drivers do. He's a bit more like maybe a, a young Michael Schumacher where his family really took that risk of, of kind of putting their own limited finances on the line to, to help 
get his junior career through. Um, and it worked, right? It's a massively inspirational story to see Ocon make it to Formula One to get back to Formula One, of course, when he took that year out um, after Force India. But he's just such a bastard on track when, when, when he's pushed to his limits of competition. We saw with Fernando, he did not like getting beaten by Fernando. He, he You know, back in, in Saudi Arabia, in Jeddah, right? Maybe I'll throw a picture on screen slamming him into the wall or you know effectively showing him the, the the pit wall making fernando have to back out on a move that many deems over the line and kind of set the tone for a teammate relationship between the two that was a bit more typical of fernando's usual teammate relationships um than maybe like the one he had with with jensen back at mclaren where they were a bit more friendly um what have we got oh yeah of course you know ocon it's it's hard to stray too far away from brazil 2017 hits the leader Max Verstappen under blue flags, dramatic moment uh, in, in Formula One. And maybe that you know, doesn't reflect well on either driver involved in that too well, because Max tried to have his Schumacher moment and, and to go lamp Ocon afterwards. Um, I think, you know, Ocon claims that he beat Fernando in, in 2022. He's like, oh, well, technically I beat him on points, but I think Fernando definitely had more, more like, unforced errors i suppose on on the the dnf side than than ocon did and over one lap you would always put your money on alonso even if ocon maybe had the benefit of um of better reliability i kind of like the fact that he's secretly a bit of a bastard i I like that he's kind of a complex guy and and that he plays this duality reminds me um in personality at least of mark marquez who as MotoGP fans will remember came into MotoGP and instantly took the fight to Rossi as the young star and said, well, you know, hold on a minute. Obviously, Marquez, a superior talent relative to, to Ocon, um, but took the fight instantly to Rossi and said, I'm not here to slouch. I'm not here to mess around. I'm going to instantly take the fight to the biggest driver, be a nuisance, be a bastard, try and laugh about it in the press conferences. But once the helmet goes on, once the foot goes to the floor or, you know, the wrist, I suppose, goes to the handlebar, um in moto gp they change gear with your feet in moto gp but i guess you, they don't go to the floor the, the knees go to the floor in moto gp but um go i'm rambling now i should look look back at my notes here um oh, esteban ocon sometimes dog right moving on top three teams come on jack hurry up right mercedes the bounce back year will it happen right the big three left um george russell lewis hamilton are they ready this year to take the fight to the top teams? I'm doing a Will Buxton impression. Talking like this to see if Mercedes can take the fight to Red Bull. George Russell on his day has been fast, but you need to finish first to win the race. That's what Will Buxton would say. That, you know, George Russell has had the car to get on the podium a lot last year and did exactly that. Mr. Saturday became Mr. Sunday. Um, You know, 275 points last year, eight podiums, including an emotional win in Sao Paulo, the one-two for Mercedes last year, a heroic moment for their fans and and really cool, like for the sport, right? To to have the silver car that is now the black car again, back at the front because all their sponsors at Mercedes will know they didn't buy in to sponsor a team that was going to be coming third. They bought in at the price of sponsorship uh, for a team that was going to compete for championships, right? And and that's ultimately what Mercedes is going to have to do to keep those sponsors around, to keep the drivers around, to keep the engineers around. Um, and they have failed to do that last year. And it doesn't seem like from testing that maybe not um, this year, they'll be ready to compete at least at the start of the year. Hopefully they can have a sort of 2017, 2018 type effect where they really take the fight towards the end of the year. George Russell specifically, of course, we know started his career with Williams fighting at the back emotionally, finally getting those final points with Williams and uh, having a bit of a cry in his interviews. Um, I mean, the test for, for George's dog status is maybe not one of the highlights of his career. um, But, after his collision with Bottas at Imola, part of me kind of liked the fact that he went up to Bottas afterwards and was like, oh, you know, 
you fucking bastard, like giving it the big and trying to have a big scrap with him after they got out of the car. I liked it because it was kind of this rising, like all the pressure of the media and the stakes of Formula One kind of boiling over um, to someone, you know, losing, losing their grip, right? Like losing their kind of focus, their press managed image and, and stability, seeing that boil over. I mean, it made me like him, right? Like it's not meant to. The press, you know, the PR people at Mercedes wouldn't like you to kind of remember that. But I kind of liked it. And I think that, you know, George Russell on his day has that dog in him and and he has a lot more days, shall we say, than uh, than most drivers. So he is going to go in that top category for me. Um, Lewis Hamilton, teammate, you know, tough to say. Um, you know, I, I, not, not tough to say which category he's going in, but tough to say the right thing about Lewis because he has had, of course, top you know, equal most amazing career in the history of Formula One, most wins, joint most championships, um, nearly won the title in his debut season, taking that fight to Fernando Alonso, losing only by one point to Kimi Raikkonen that, of course, we remember Lewis could have had uh, at the Chinese Grand Prix of 2007, sliding into the pit entry gravel trap and throwing his title hopes away and then coming back on the last lap of the Sao Paulo Grand Prix of 2008 to win the championship on the last lap, the most dramatic thing that's ever happened. Oh, my also focus. Come on here. There we go. Um, is this, oh boy, I'm going to have to do a sort of Casey Neistat type moment here. There we go. Yeah, what can you say, right? Lewis Hamilton is first ever race in Formula One. I think we got told exactly all we needed to know about him. James Allen said something on the commentary um, that I think has stuck with me ever since I heard it. And he said, there's something of a star in that boy. And he was exactly right. Um, Lewis Hamilton, turn one of Melbourne 2007, his first ever start in Formula One, starting fourth, drops back a little bit on the line, P5 going into turn one, bang, two positions around the outside. Again, I'll throw that photo on screen now. Does his teammate Fernando Alonso around the outside of turn one into P3 from P5, first corner, first race, never look back, right? What, what can you say about Lewis Hamilton? Seven titles, over 100 wins. Everyone on that day back in 2007 knew that there was a new dog in town and there's been nothing to disprove it since. Moving on to Ferrari, the red cars. It's about time, right, with Ferrari. In many ways, clever title from me there. Um, it's about time we see them compete for the, the title and whether they win that title, it's going to depend on the time, right, that they, that they finish on. Carlos Sainz Jr., a.k.a. Carlito, a.k.a. El Smooth Operator. It's a tough one because he's really upped his game since those Rari paychecks started hitting. And particularly in 2021, I mean, he beat Leclerc on points. Leclerc, of course, had that Monaco DNF um, that could have taken him, I think, above Charles in the, in the oh, sorry, taken him above, above Carlos in the final standings. Um, but yeah, a really important like debut year for Carlos, I think, in 2021 to get his confidence with Ferrari. Um, we've got the Ferrari where there ferrari badge up there um it's always good to see the red cars at the front right 2022 for carlos Sainz, the cars were fast again the pressure was on he knew over one lap it was always going to be tough to compete with leclerc he, leclerc maybe the best qualifier that we currently have in in formula one um and it was always going to be hard to take the fight into him and he was going to have to compete on race pace and the only thing that i think held carlos back a little bit was that, you know, his race pace by not being able to qualify at the front by having to start third, fourth, fifth sometimes, you're going to be in that mix of the things that can happen on the first lap of a Formula One race. I mean, the most brutal one, of course, him getting turned around uh, after getting the pole, right, in uh, in Texas. So maybe that disproves the rule, right? You can, you can still get hit if you start first. But um, too often having to start in that midfield is going to leave you kind of susceptible to being hit by someone else or to falling into one of your own mistakes, starting a big accident. Carlos's kind of brightest star in, in his uh, Formula One career has got to be Silverstone, right? One of the best races of last year, fighting through strategy, team orders, Ferrari teams falling apart around him and he keeps his cool to bring home the win, to not throw it into the gravel, to not give the fans something to cheer about and, and bring Lewis into the fight. Leclerc, we know, thought he should have won that day. Um, but Carlos was, was the one who took the crown and it was amazing to see the emotions pour out across the line. He does have the race craft and if he can up his quality pace this year, he will be in that supreme tier of driver. 
I really can't tell if this. I hope this camera is in focus because I don't really want, I don't want to re-record this. Um, Charles Leclerc, aka Charles. Oh, sorry. Carlos signs full dog status. Of course, you can't be a Ferrari driver unless you got that dog in you um, at the moment because the car's too good, right? They could put anyone in there. They could have anyone they want with a car that good, and they've picked Carlos and they've picked Carlos for a reason. So, got to go with him. I'm doing the Will Buxton thing again. I'm changing the tone of my voice and the, the volume of it and change, changing the pace. Um, right, here we go. Charlotte Claire, a.k.a. Charlotte Leg Leg, a.k.a. Banana Boy, a.k.a. Single Man. Reveal yourself. It's the bounce back year for Charlotte Claire. He's single again. Flying around the world, DMing models, Lewis style, I assume. But, oh man, Charles has to feel like he the, the walk to the title for Max last year was made far too easy by things out of his control, right? Charles had more poles than Verstappen. You're, own, you're most likely to win from pole, um, unless your name is Max Verstappen, right? When You're more likely to win when Charles starts there when, than, uh, than when Max starts there. I think the new team principle at Ferrari has to be a motivation factor for Charles. We saw him kind of fall out with Bonotto. We didn't think Bonotto had a good grip on the team last year and was probably right to say that. Um, Fred Vassour founder of, of ART, one of the staples of the junior formulas and, um, you know, George Russell's Formula 2 team. Um, and, you know, something that is going to give him the right experience to know how to manage the big team. And it's the biggest opportunity of Vassour's career to be the team principal of Ferrari. The pressure that goes into that role um, is absolutely incredible. Charles' junior career is... Own, it's an autofocus. It's really going crazy today. Charles' junior career is only really rivaled by Piastri in terms of his quality of speed and the speed at which he was able to develop under pressure with those Prima cars. Again, the expectation is going to be to win. And if you don't do that, you're crumbling. And Charles never showed any signs of crumbling under that pressure. Um, again, his amazing qualifying speed. He has the respect of everyone in the paddock, right? I think Max knows Charles will probably be his closest competitor to the title this year, um, more, more than Checo of course. Um, and yeah, Charles, we, we know, has now been cemented among the top tier of Formula One strong drivers. So he's going, of course, in that top dog category um, alongside Max, George uh, and, and Lando, right? Gasly, or Albon tagging just behind. But I think those are kind of going to be our four pillars of, uh, of the future of Formula One. Finally, the big boys, Red Bull Racing, the hungriest team, on the grid. Best catering from what I've heard. Checo Perez. You don't stay in Formula One for, for over a decade without an elite level of skill and an edge over the drivers around you, right? He's not there by accident. Does he have the ultimate ability to stay consistent over a race to pull incredible tyre strategies off? Yes. But the ultimate competitive dog, the speed to beat Max, the speed to beat Charles, you know, he was beaten to second in the championship, right? My camera's flashing at me again. I don't know what I'm doing wrong here. I'll try and wrap this up as quickly as I can. Perez had a reputation as a tyre whisperer who would make a one-stopper work and sneak into the points with the Salbor on the days where the car alone would not have the pace to be competitive. Perez holds the somewhat enviable record of the first most races before a Grand Prix win with 190 Grand Prix before his dramatic start in, or sorry, before starting his run of wins at the 2020 Sakir Grand Prix. Um, I suppose it's still better than Nico Hulkenberg's record of the most ever races without a podium, because at least it did end in a win, but it's still unenviable for it to take that long. Perez did an amazing job of playing teammate in 2021, helping Max to win that title. We remember races like Turkey and, of course, Abu Dhabi, that final round. Massively important for Checo, I think, to, um, you know, to get in there, right? Adding on to that list of results, uh, you know, wins at Baku in 21, Monaco this year, Singapore this year, pole at Jeddah this year. It becomes clear why Checo was signed by Red Bull, why he's so well respected in the garage and why he was picked over the other people that, that could have had that seat, right? I assume there's a lot of jealous eyes on Checo, a lot of people that are looking at that Red Bull car and thinking, hmm, if you put me in that, I bet I could give Max a, a run for his money. Checo... It's got to be a sometimes dog, right? I'd love to see him turn up the heat in the garage. If he can turn up the heat in the garage, piss off Max a little bit, push it, make Max uncomfortable, play Max's game and drive like a bit of a bastard, then, um, you know, he, he would make it up to that top level for me. But until then, it's only going to be that middle category because the relationship between the first and the second driver is a lot more structured at Red Bull um, than it is at Mercedes or than it is at Ferrari. 
And that leaves us with the reigning, defending, back-to-back Formula One world champion, Max Verstappen, a.k.a. Super Max, a.k.a. the Dutch Lion. bit like Lewis, it's very hard to say things about Max that haven't already been said. Um, a little bit differently to Lewis, both on the positive and negative side. Every fan has an opinion on Max. Um, the guy joined Formula One as its youngest ever driver, emulating a path to the sport that only really Kimi Raikkonen um, has you know, has paved the way for, right? To jump over the traditional ladder and say, nah, bin this off. He's too fast. He can't spend time dancing in these junior categories. He has to get straight to Formula One before any team would really think he was ready for Formula One. Throw him in at the deep end, sink or swim. That's the Red Bull way. Um, And maybe not the right way for every driver, but for Max, it had to be, right? He was pushing the limits since day one. We had the Max Verstappen rules, on double moves being added to the rule book back in 2015, him pushing everything to the absolute limit. Um, and again, a bit like Mark Marquez being a bastard, right? Taking the fight right to the people he needed to take the fight to, not sitting down, not changing uh, for anyone. Barcelona 2016, everyone remembers Max Verstappen's first one in the sport, youngest ever race winner in Formula One, holding back Kimi Raikkonen in those closing laps. You know, obviously after the Silver Arrows had, had crashed, taken themselves out of the race. It was his first chance to win and a chance that he took almost immediately. And I think since that day, maybe not since his debut in the sport, but since that day in 2016, everyone remembered the name Max Verstappen um, and they haven't forgotten it since, right? Tiger Woods style. Verstappen, you know, dog. What else can you say, right? The back-to-back reigning title. He's got 35 wins, 77 podiums and a target on his back this year. Um much to be said about how he became the man he is today. Um, tough upbringing. Again, echoes of, of Tiger and that with the relationship with his father. Um, but the challenges and the triumphs of his life have, have all come together to create one of the most incredible talents that the sport has ever seen. Um, he may be called the Dutch Lion, but uh, for anyone watching F1 at the moment, it's undeniable that Max Verstappen has the dog in him. Um, and if... You know, if something dramatically changes, then he probably isn't the title favorite. But I think in everyone's eyes now with how good that Red Bull is looking, it's got to be his title to lose, right? One, two, three, four.